Um, my name is Ali Shahada, and I'm representing UCLA Radio. How are you? Good. How are you doing? I'm doing well. Okay, first question. Do you think the profit distribution in the music industry is fair and justified? Why or why not? Uh, the profit distribution in the music industry is not fair or justified. Um, as they say, if you want fair, go to Pomona. I think it follows the what they call the golden rule of Hollywood, which is he who has the gold makes the rules. Um, and, you know, these major labels and major label conglomerates um, set the tone and they, they set the rates. And, you know, there's some negotiation between them if you're in some kind of bidding war. But by and large, no, it's, it's, it's tilted um, ridiculously towards the label and away from the artist. Um, and so given what you just said, what advice would you give to a new up-and-coming artist who's, like, entering into the prospect of signing with a record label um, but isn't, doesn't quite understand? Well, would, what advice would you give them to avoid, like, as much exploitation as possible? Okay. Um, you know, for, for a new and or up-and-coming artist who's on the verge of signing a record deal, I think it's important to understand a few things, which is, one, what are you trying to accomplish and two, what business are you truly in? Um, because if you're a, a successful current artist, your income pie chart should look something like this. It should be probably 70 to 80 percent um, of your income will come from ticket sales, from live performances. Uh, 10 to 20 percent will come from tour merchandise, which is you know stuff that you sell at your show. Um, the rest of your income will come, you know, five to fifteen percent from publishing, two to four percent, two to five percent ancillary income, and two to four percent um, record or music sales. So really, you're in the tickets and T-shirts business. You are not in the recorded music business. The music that you're recording and, and you're releasing are actually like promotions or um, commercials for your tour. So. You know, the lion's share of your income, again, will come from tickets and T-shirts, and that's really the business you're in. Um, I think that's it, really. So how do you think an artist should decide whether or not they should try to get signed or try to make it independently? And then coupled with that question, how do you think the role of record labels is changing and will continue to change with new technologies okay. in the music industry? All right. Uh, there's really two ways to, to look at the landscape. You know, uh, with the advent of technology and the Internet um, and streaming platforms, now anybody, whether they're an artist or not, but, but certainly any artist can have what's called a handshake relationship with their fans. And a handshake relationship it was a term that's been used for decades um, to explain the person who actually had physical contact with the fan. And... Again, for many decades in the music business, the only person who had a handshake relationship with the fan was the record store. Record store clerks were the only ones that actually met and talked to fans. Everything else was done at arm's length. Uh, today, every artist has a handshake relationship with every fan through the Internet. But that brings on a whole new issue, which is cutting through the clutter. Because you know, back in the heyday of rock and roll, say in the 60s and 70s, uh, maybe in the 80s, um, certainly in the 60s and 70s, you had, you know, two, three, four hundred records being released commercially a year. 
and you could slog through most of it. And we and you had very effective filters. You know, like Rolling Stone magazine was an effective filter back in the 60s or 70s. If they wrote about a band, the band was worth checking out. And when you have three to four hundred records a year being commercially released, again, you know that's that's a tenable pile. Um, today, you have over sixty thousand songs a day being uploaded to Spotify. Sixty thousand per day. And how is anybody going to cut through that clutter? And so, breaking through the clutter and actually, you know, rising, having your head raise up so that someone can notice you and your music is so monumentally difficult. Um, and it has to be driven by traction from many different places, you know, social media, live performance, reviews, press, publicity, et cetera. Um, you know, what a major label brings to the table is an unparalleled ability to promote and market music. And so I think if, if you know, your genre is pop or R&B or maybe some hip-hop um, the record label has a great advantage, a major label. Um, other than those genres, which are, are very, very expensive to market and promote, um, you know, there are ways to be an independent artist and to put your music up, um, avoiding the major labels, using indies, doing it yourself, etc. But again, you're going to have the same issue of trying to cut through the clutter. So, you know, it's kind of three-dimensional chess. You can't just look at one factor; you have to look at all of them. And then finally. Again, if you're a successful artist, 90% of your income is coming from tickets and T-shirts anyway. So what do you think the public most misunderstands about profit within the industry? And like, if you could raise the general public's awareness about one thing that goes on behind the scenes of the music industry, what would it be and why? I think there are two areas in which the public has a, a large misconception. And, and frankly, in one of them, I think artists have a large a misconception. Um, the first is that, you know, the, the money that artists make from streaming is so infinitesimal. You know, it used to be in, back in the, again, 60s, 70s, 80s, 90s, um, certainly in the 80s and 90s, you know, when, an, when if we sold a million CDs, the artist would make two and a half, three million dollars. And now, when you have the equivalent of a million CDs, which is, uh, they call a track equivalent album, which would be 10 million streams, the artist makes in between $16,000 and $30,000. So it's just so inequitable, and it's such a huge disparity um, that you know the artists are the ones that are creating all of the uh, creating all of the art that's fed through these streaming platforms, and yet they're the ones that are that are paid the least. Um, so I think it's very inequitable, and I don't think it encourages. Uh, a lot of new art. I don't think it encourages a lot of new artists. Um, you know, it, it, there, you can't make a living. Uh, it, as they say, there are no singles or doubles. There's only home runs or strikeouts. So I think that's one misconception. The other misconception, which I think is shared by many new artists as well as the public, is that, again, for decades, you know, people thought that records and record sales ruled this business you know I, I would hear all the time oh my god the rolling stones are releasing a new record and they're going on tour to support it and it's like no that's not true it's actually the opposite the stones decided a tour and so they re released an album to support their tour because if you think about it um you know the record the artist is going to own somewhere between 15 and 25 percent of that 
whereas they're going to own 90% of their ticket sales and their tour. Um, and to have a top 10 hit at pop radio today means the equivalent of six to 12,000 spins per week across the country. And so if you're on tour selling tickets that you own 90% of and have a top 10 single, that's really six to 12,000 free commercials for your tour every week. Um, and so the tour and the tickets are what drive everything. You know, um, there are bands in different genres that are making millions of dollars per night touring. Now, of course, that's at the top of the game, and they're making millions also in tour merch. But even, uh, you know, a mid-level successful artist should be making several million a year from tickets and, and T-shirts and maybe making hundreds of thousands or tens of thousands from their recorded music. Those are the two misconceptions I, I think that the public has. That's interesting. So what I'm hearing from you in general is that artists are essentially increasingly dependent on, on touring and, like, connecting intimately and personally with their fans through social media, through tours, um, because that's where they're generating the most amount of independent profit, right? So, Well, I wouldn't say increasingly. It's always been that way. Okay. It's always... But it's always been that way, but, they're, they're, mm -hmm. you know, you've got to remember back at the advent uh, or the heyday of rock and roll in the 60s and 70s, you know, those concert tickets were three, four, five, six, ten dollars $10. You know, so if the Rolling Stones sold out the forum with 14,000 seats, um, you know, they were grossing 50000 bucks. Today, those tickets are 250 300 $350 each, and so they can easily make a couple million playing that, that forum show. So that's a huge difference. But even and when the tickets were cheaper, uh, it was still, you know, that was the primary source of income for successful artists. Um, what accounts for, if you could pinpoint, like that increase in price of concert tickets? Is it? Well, um, it's a really smart question. I think that um, concert tickets were always undervalued. I think that they were, that, that I think that, um, nobody ever charged enough money or they certainly they didn't charge what the market would bear and that's what gave birth to the whole scalper industry was these tickets would come out at seven eight ten dollars scalpers would buy them all up and sell them for forty fifty seventy five a hundred because the market demand was there um, and as income went up and as inflation grew and as wages came up you know ticket prices grew finally to what the market demand is, you know, do I think it's right or fair that it, you know, it should cost three hundred fifty dollars to go see Lana Del Rey at the Hollywood Bowl? Um, you know, intrinsically, it is fair because that's what the market will bear. People are willing to pay that price, so why shouldn't they charge that price? You know, on the other hand, I think it keeps a lot of people from getting exposed to new live music because who wants to pay three hundred fifty dollars to go see an artist they've never experienced before? And there are certain bands. Um, usually in, in indie genres that keep their prices artificially low just so that they can expose to new fans and they can keep the prices, you know, uh, as they think, um, f more fair. Um, you know, you look at a band like Fugazi, um, an underground punk band from California, and um, they're, they've been known for 30 years for keeping their ticket prices super low. You can go see a Fugazi show for 10 bucks or 15 bucks. Could they charge 100 or 200? Probably. Uh, do they? No. But that's a that's a conscious decision they've made on their part. Um, um, they're, you, they're like keeping the ticket prices low just because they want to 
sort of encourage equity, like in the music world, or is it? Well, I think there are many bands, mostly independent, that are keeping their ticket prices artificially low to spread the joy and to help you know people discover them and to not quote gouge unquote their fans. Um, you know, do I think ticket prices should be lower? Sure, I'd love ticket prices to be lower. I'd love to be able to go see a, t- a concert for fifty, sixty bucks. Um, but that's not the market demand. I'd also like Porsches to be $10,000. And I'd like to be able to rent a Beverly Hills apartment for 600 bucks. but the market demand is much higher, so they charge more. You know, and in, in a capitalist or democratic society, basically, you know, there's free enterprise and the market will rise to what the market will bear. Um, and apparently, there's a lot of people willing to pay those prices for tickets. I don't necessarily think it's um, advantageous. Uh, I wish they were lower, but it is what it is. Do you imagine the value of concerts decreasing in the future because of, this is very hypothetical, but because of any like sort of virtual reality experience or anything like that, or do you think that the experience will always sort of be like irreplicable, um, just seeing the art live? Uh that's, that's another smart question. I, I think that concert tickets, I think that concerts and live music experiences will only grow. Um, and there will always be new technologies coming along to give access to music. Um, you know, you can have an artist like Travis Scott do a, a live performance in Fortnite, and a lot of people go and watch that, but there's no it's really not a replacement for being at a live venue watching a concert take place right in front of you where you're part of that communal experience. And the communal experience is the key. Because, you know, if you look at the film, if you look at the movie, the film business, um, there's tons of technology that's come along. Everybody can have a media room in their house and you can watch it in 5K, uh, in in 8K, and you can watch it in 7.1 surround. But people still like to go out to the movies because it's a communal experience. It's a way to get out of the house and share this thing you're experiencing and listen to other people react to it live and in real time, and and you're part of a tribe. And certainly, going to a concert is a tribal experience. You're finding your people who think like you do, who like the same music you do, and you're sharing this communal experience with the artist right in front of you. And it's all driven by spontaneity and proximity and some eroticism and great music and I don't think that's going away it certainly hasn't and I I only see that continuing to grow because you can't duplicate the communal experience Uh, and with virtual reality you've got a pair of goggles on you're completely cut off from everybody you're having a solo experience and when you're at a concert you're having a communal tribal experience and I think that humans crave that I think we need that as as animals I think it's part of what um, drives us, and I don't think that that's ever going away. Yeah, I agree, and I hope that that's will ring true. Um, okay, as an average consumer of music, how can I more thoughtfully engage with music in a way that reduces potential exploitation or in a way that you think will redirect the credit where it deserves? That's a really good question. Um, you know, listen, I, I think uh, art is communication. And I think art carries messages, and I think art is necessary, and I think art saves lives. And there are artists in every genre, be that music or sculpture or fine art or poetry or whatever it might be. Um, And I think as a society, 
we need to honor that art and those artists and you know they they help our psyche and again they help save lives and they help um really um salve our, our wounded souls and i hate to see artists being exploited um in fact i hate that word exploit um and so to the degree that you know you can support artists i certainly encourage you to do so you know um buy their music uh, if you listen to vinyl, um, stream their music on, um, you know, credited platforms where you know the artist is getting paid. Uh, go see their shows, buy their T-shirts, uh, support them in any way you can. Would you, like, express any preference in different streaming platforms in the way that they support artists or any more specifics of, like, where to go to consume music? Well, I think the consumption of music has completely changed, you know, uh, in the last 10, 15 years. In fact, all of society has changed. You hear this phrase that a lot of young people are saying, which is experiences over things. And you've seen much and much less uh, interest in ownership. I don't think there's much interest in owning music anymore. I think it's just, you know, being able to, as you said, consume music, listen to music, uh, have it at your fingertips, and have it available at all times. You don't have to own anything. Um, and because of that paradigm shift in experience over ownership, um, you know, the money has really, really gone down for artists. Uh, but as far as platforms, I think they're all pretty agnostic as long as they're legitimate platforms that are legitimately paying royalties to the artists. So be that Tidal or Spotify or Pandora or SiriusXM or YouTube or however you consume it or Koboos or whatever platform you want to use, Amazon. Um, you know, it's Ford, Chevy, Lincoln, Mercury. That's really interesting. I love what you said, paradigm um, shift of experience over ownership. That's true. Um, so in your in a hypothetical world, you are given endless power, access to everything, what sort of, like, medium would you create for consumers to engage with music and artists? Would you have them go directly? Would you have something like what we have today with Spotify and streaming platforms like that? Like, would you change no, it? Would smart, you it? It's a smart question. Um, if I could create a hypothetical world, uh, and I hate to sound like a dinosaur, uh, I, I hope my viewpoint isn't dinosaur-like, but I hope it's more pragmatic, uh, I would actually revert back to an album culture, because that's another thing we've lost over the last 20 years. And I saw it coming with the advent of CDs in the 80s. When I first saw my first CD player in like 1981, and you could pick whatever track you wanted to go to, go immediately to track seven, I knew that we're on the road to the end of the album as a piece of art. And I remember talking to Ray Manzarek, the keyboard player from The Doors, um, about this many years ago. And Ray was like a great professor to me. You know, he was uh, he got his master's in film at UCLA. That's where he met Jim Morrison at UCLA Film School. Um, and he was a very smart, cultured, educated, artistic guy. And one of the things he said to me one day, we were talking about uh, releasing an anniversary version of a Doors album. And I was talking to him about putting some uh, additional tracks on it or bonus tracks. And he interrupted me and he said, Jeff, there's no such thing. He said, an album is our work of art. He said, we recorded these songs and we put them together in one album to reflect what we wanted to communicate. 
you know, the first song the Doors ever wrote was Moonlight Drive, but it didn't even go. It, they didn't even release it until they put it on the second album. They didn't even put it on the first album because it wasn't part of that of that album. And albums were the work of art. And what he said to me is he said, you know, would we put those 10 songs or 11 songs together in the order we put them, that's how we're presenting our art to you. That's how we want you to consume it. Um, and, and what you're talking about is like buying a Picasso painting and just saying, well, there should be more red in it, so let's add some red. That's not what Picasso intended. He intended that painting to be exactly as it is. Um, so I would like to see people be able to go back and enjoy that album experience. And further, um, because of the limitations of technology, we were forced to listen to entire albums, or certainly one side of an album, you know, because it was too hard to lift up the needle and put it in the next song without scratching the record or missing the intro. And so we ended up putting a, the needle on, in the record on, on track one, side one, and we'd listen to the entire side. And I remember many bands I discovered um, by listening to some of those deep tracks. That's what I would do. I would I would love to encourage people to go back and experiencing experience these albums, these works of art, as they were created by the artist. And I think you might have a really transcendent experience that otherwise you never would. Yeah, that's very interesting. I, I find that just even in the dialogue around music, there's barely any mention of how an album was curated or the purpose of the order of the songs. Um, and I've never thought critically about how that would have been like the center of music beforehand. Yeah, that's that is the work of art. And um, do artists today do you think that they think as much about albums as a work of art, or do you think that they've changed that thinking because they understand that consumers can just pick and choose songs, put it in playlists? I mean, consumers more like create their own work of art with playlists. If, well, if that the, my answer may um, collide a little bit with my answer to another question that you asked or will ask. Um, in that, I think a lot of artists today. Look, generally, I think that um, musical artists tend to be really shitty actors. They're not good actors. They're good musicians. And so as a musician, I think that's what you should do. And don't try and be something you're not. Don't try and pretend. Don't try and put on a front. And don't try and cloak yourself in the garb of the day to be more popular to more people. I think that's the antithesis of art. I think art is about experiencing feelings and emotions and occurrences and then transmitting them through your chosen medium to others who share those feelings. Um, and I think what I've seen happening over the last 15, 20 years is a lot of bad actors coming to the table and they look at the charts and they go, oh, how can I be more like this guy? How can I write a song that's going to get a higher position? How can I... Uh, create myself to be something that's more popular. It, to me, again, it, it's the antithesis of art. And you look at some of the pop songs today, uh, they've got nine, ten writers on them, and they've got these combines that are people coming together to try and write hit songs, um, not necessarily to create amazing works of art. And that's one of the many reasons why you won't see a lot of really amazing um, bands or artists anymore, because they're all chasing the dollar, they're chasing the fame, and they're chasing the success, they're not chasing art. And it really disappoints me. It hurts me. Um, and I'm not judging them. I'm not saying I, I, I would or wouldn't do the same thing. Ah, oh, that's bullshit. Of course I'm judging them. And I, I, I would not do the same thing and have not done the same thing. 
Um, but I believe in art for art's sake, and I believe in, in serving that master, and I believe in serving that gift. And when I see people deter from that, um, it, it hurts me. And I think there's a couple generations now of people that are, you know, looking at becoming famous. You know, they say that a celebrity is someone who's famous for being well-known. But I don't understand what they do. You know, I don't really understand what Addison Ray does. I'm very clear on what Stevie Nicks does. I'm very clear on what Jimi Hendrix does. I have no clue what Paris Hilton does. Right? There are celebrities who are famous for being well-known. And they come and they go, and they're like pablum. And, and everybody forgets about them 20 minutes later. And I think as a result of that, as a partial result of that, um, we've created this disposable pop culture where there's no real great art of deep meaning being created, or at least much less. Um, and there are artists here and there who, who are still serving their muse and I think are creating amazing art, but they seem to be fewer and further between. Yes, and it's interesting because, like, I think that there's an awareness that, you know, when people are engaging with Addison Rae and um, things of that liking, that there's, like, a lack of talent and that it, she does not compare to other well-established artists, but still, like, she's consumed nonetheless and gains profit and, and fame. Right. Everything Which is fine, cool. but I don't have to like it. I don't have to, and I don't have to. Uh, it, it doesn't move me. Um, so switching gears a little bit, what is one new thing you learned that surprised you about the music industry during your time um, with the Recording Academy on the Board of Governors in the Los Angeles chapter? Um, I, I think I learned a lot when I was serving on the Board of Governors. Um, you know, and I, I realized how many people really cared about music and how many people really cared about artists and how much community community there was. And it also, it hurt me a little bit to realize how many artists and other people in the, re, in the recording industry don't take advantage of that community. You know, uh, whether it's managers or um, artists themselves, I, I just think that People are driven a lot by fear and insecurity and maybe some low self-esteem, but the fear more than anything. And I think they're scared of losing something or they're scared of, of um, I don't know, sharing their ideas. And I think through community and sharing, I think that's when the greatest art is created. So um, I learned how many people care, and I learned how few people really take advantage of the community. Do you... Do you want to say anything to wrap this up? No, I think we're good. Okay. Thank you so much for taking the time to um, speak with me.